And now, proper propaganda. Pull my mic back, you like that? Journalists with journalists too. We can strike back. Hardcore reporters with orders from headquarters. Behind enemy lines, sidestepping the borders. If you're just tuning in to Civic Cipher, I am your host, Ramses Jock. I go by the name of Q Ward. Yes, indeed. And if you're just tuning in, be sure to stick around because we're examining some interesting points made by a social media influencer. We call him. His name is Dan Priciano. Um, he had a stream of consciousness uh, not too long ago and put some hard-hitting facts up, and we're reviewing them now. Um, but let's, before we get back into that, discuss how to become a better ally. So, we're talking about this gentleman, Dan Price, at Dan Price Seattle on Twitter. And for today's Baba, Become a Better Ally, I would like for you to follow him, subscribe to his feed. Even if you don't want to follow him, review it. You'll see that he these sources are well documented you'll be able to you know it's just one of those rabbit holes that you might want to plug into if you want to become a better ally if you want to become a better brother or sister to you know people who don't look like you this is the way to do it but he's not the only one there's another person i'm a big fan of Uh, his name is brian stevenson and he is the person behind the movie just mercy starring uh jamie fox and michael b jordan but I've known Brian Stevenson for a very, very long time. I got put onto him in like 2012 or something um, because of a TED talk. I love this guy. And you can follow him at EJI underscore ORG. EJI standing for Equal Justice Initiative, which is his initiative. Um, if, you know, inmate rights and, and, sent, and, you know, the criminal justice system is more your thing. You know, Dan Price, of course, is more about economics and business and that sort of stuff. But Brian Stevenson, EJI.org, be sure to check him out if, you know, the criminal justice system is something you need to learn about. Uh, A group I follow on Facebook that I really wish more people knew about is called Audit the Audit. And what they do is they monitor police interactions and they'll take the video and they'll have a lawyer or some educated person examine what's happening during the interactions. And it's just a great way to get educated so that we know what's happening and we can I think that's the best way to support the police is by knowing what it is they should be doing. And I will leave you with a name, janeelliot.com. Even if you don't really plug in, she's someone that you need to know about. Um, And that is how you can become a better ally. Now, um, back to Dan Price. I feel like I want to get some thoughts from you, Q, before we jump back in. How are you feeling so far? I just want people to kind of process all this data and this information with this lens, these are not random statistical anomalies. It'd be impossible for these statistics to be slighted this heavy in disfavor of black people. It'd be impossible for that to be random. So view, view all of this information through that lens. This is systemic, this is intentional. This is not just by happenstance, like, man, all of those, all of those statistics really just randomly worked out that way for those people. No, they absolutely did not. This system was, was very intentionally put into place 
uh, to have these outcomes. And when you're hearing all of this information through that lens, it hits you a little bit different. I want to read or something. At least, it, at least it should. I want to read something um, that I came across. I might share this on our social media page um, eventually, which, by the way, follow us at Civic Cipher, C-I-V-I-C-C-I-P-H-E-R on all social media. Um, to your point, Q, uh, and this is about critical race theory, and normally I don't do this sort of thing, but just I think it helps illustrate your point. Um, a person asked, I get that the GOP does not want CRT, critical race theory, to be taught in schools, but can you tell me what CRT really is? And the answer is, my pleasure. Critical race theory was developed by a largely African-American group of law professors starting in the 1970s when they noticed that the elimination of racist laws didn't actually do much to make the justice system less racist. The theory part is that systems and institutions set up prior to the elimination of racist laws still maintain those racist origins and are why the legal system still has racist outcomes, such as the fact that black people are less likely to have charges dropped before trial than white people. It's something you might study in a postgraduate law program assuming you're working with one of the dozen or so professors that are actually working in that area. As such, you won't study it in law school, university, and especially not in high school or elementary school. It would, like, it would be like trying to teach topography in math class. You need a lot more math than you'll ever be able to learn in high school to even begin to try to understand it. Now, what people try to say is critical race theory like teaching about racism in America, is actually what is known as American history. <laughs> Children in elementary school and high school aren't being taught that now because people who actually did those bad things are often still alive and don't want people to know what bad things they did. One of the problems is that slavery is taught as the history of black people and not the history of white people. So I think it was important to read that because, again, it illustrates that there are systems that are set up where even if you change the laws, the system, the, 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 the mechanism creates these outcomes. And it's reinforced subtly in the minds of some people, but also in the framework of society, like subtle conditioning and then more formal in institutions elsewhere. You know, we, we talk about them all the time, you know, and I don't I, I'm learning to not bully. The police. Um, because I don't believe that two wrongs make a right. And I do recognize the human beings in the uniforms, but I will forever remain critical of the institution as long as that institution ends lives needlessly. Pretty much as long as you're carrying guns, because that feels a little like. All right, well, uh, just in case I need to end the life today. Go ahead, Q, jump in. That's a very interesting way to, pull, to put that. Just in case I you know, might need to kill someone, then let's make sure we got the tools that we need. Yeah, um, why not get a bulletproof vest? If, you're, if you need to protect yourself, that's protection. A gun is to kill someone. I don't know, yeah, man. Or put in the, the trunk. <laughs> I wanted to point out the use um, or almost the manipulation of people's very vague understanding of critical race theory 
uh, a certain sector of our population has, has, has gone to dog whistling in a way that they know a lot of people don't know what that means, right? They've made it scary, attached it to everything, having anything to do with segments of American history like slavery and scared people into thinking our kids shouldn't learn about this. Even though, as you just pointed out, they're not one in the same. You guys don't want us to teach our kids American history is what it is. But if you said that out loud, people would think you were ridiculous. So you have to brand it as critical race theory, knowing that hundreds of millions of people have no idea what that means. Make it a scary term, just like socialism, because a lot of people don't know what that means either. But if I can make it scary and give it a, a, a somewhat permanent negative connotation, I can dog at large groups of people using these scary terms and get the outcomes that I want. Um, so it's just it's interesting to hear you read that definition because I'm sure there are people listening to this show that heard that definition for the first time today, but have heard critical race theory said a hundred times before. Yeah, and they didn't, didn't know what it was. Yeah. Well, um, to their credit, the uh, the right, uh, the conservative wing of this country, is excellent when it comes to marketing especially marketing fear. I've never like, wow, I went to school for marketing. I have a degree hanging on my wall <laughs> and I, so I can see it and it is not got milk. It is, it is <laughs> not, uh, you know, have it your way. It is not that it is different. It is like, like they get in the head of these people oh, and freak them out. They have a lot of people thinking that we are the enemy. It's the wildest thing. Yo, we, the only thing that we, we ask for is equality and never revenge. Never in any circle have I ever heard that. We need to get revenge. No, we need to get equality. We need to get equity. We need to get a fair shot. We need to, you know, we need what this These country has promised people, to its citizens. Most people would, would, would view as minimums. Yeah, minimum. it's the most that we ask for. <laughs> the absolutely. minimum. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, so let's get back into uh, Dan Price. Um, that detour was necessary. I'm glad we took that one, but let's get back here. So, um, there's some more slides uh, before. Actually, before we get into this, there are some people, black people, who make a point of identifying quote unquote white saviors. What this term means is uh, a person that comes in and says, oh, poor black people, I'm white, so I'm going to save them. As opposed to, um, hey, look, this doesn't look right. I respect black people and brown people. Um, they're, they're thinkers, they're, they're not just rappers and singers and, and you know all that, dancers, they're thinkers. You know, they're leaders, they're politicians, they're everything that everything that anyone else is. So we will figure out what it is that they need for their communities by asking them and then empower them to take such action. Right. So not I'm going to step in and get all the, the shine and the glory, um, but I'm going to empower them. So this is the difference between a, what would be known as a white savior and I don't, a good an person, ally. an ally. There you go. An ally. And before anybody comes at me telling me, why did you do a whole show on this white savior? 
I don't think that this guy is. At no point did I, in my research for today's show, did I see him insert himself into some circumstances where a black person's voice would have carried further or a black person's actions would have meant more or anything like that. He is a businessman who is speaking to corporate interests and economics in a space where most of the people that are observing what he's doing and finding out what works look like him. I call that an ally. And if you have a problem with that, then you can come see me. But I implore you, be careful with that one. I don't, and that's, oh man, I, I wish that everybody just kind of knew that we're, all of us, we're all trying to get there together. We don't need to tear each other down. If we get it wrong, you know, not just us, anyone, if you get it wrong, talk to us. I got to tear it down. Anyway, I'll get back to it. Um, so his next slide, he says, um, oh, let me give you a little bit more history. So his, his slides are a little bit about, um, not just about race. This stream of consciousness has a lot to do with race, but he's also talking about, you know, teachers and education, healthcare, um, you know, workers' rights, you know, uh, uh, quality of life, of course, economics, you know, business, all that sort of stuff. And standing up for the underdog, like he says. Um, so recently he put up a post that said, 18 years ago today, I started my company, Gravity Payments. I was 19 years old and just, excuse me, just trying to survive. Uh, we now have over 200 employees, over $50 million a year in revenue, pay everyone a living wage. Again, $70,000 minimum wage at his company. Uh, and have never had one layoff. He says, my secret, great employees, CEOs don't matter, workers do. I think that that better identifies who he is as a person. And this thing we're talking about today is one facet of that. He hasn't built his whole identity around, you know, anything like rescuing black folks. And even that, I take issue with it because if someone did, if that was their life's mission, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. I, I do get that. Some people take issue, and I guess I can understand why, but I don't have a problem with that. Go ahead. And I mean, that's, that's similar to the conversation that you and I had before, because to outsiders, people's intentions matter, right? So, but, yeah. But, but sometimes outcomes should outweigh intentions, even if a Absolutely. person's entire mission was to say, hey, look at me. I'm awesome. Look at all these black people I helped if we're looking at all the black people they helped, then I don't care that it's clout chasing. I don't care that their that their their reason for it was to ultimately big themselves up. If the outcomes are still righteous, thank you. Because thank we you. had that issue just to give you guys full transparency when we started the Change Society and hashtag Lunchback more specifically one of our our, our flagship programs. It's a social media program. Hence the name, hashtag lunchbag. And we got a lot of pushback from people saying, hey, get the cameras out of those people's faces. You know, we were feeding homeless people with, with stop, this program. Stop, stop saying, hey, look at me. I'm so great because I'm doing this thing and just do it. And it's like, sure, the five of us could just do it. But by sharing it on social media, millions of people all over the world got involved. 70, 80 cities at a time, all at once, feeding millions of people because of social media. So, of course, some people came out 
because it was a good look on their Instagram to be seen doing something good for people. But the outcomes were still righteous. Those people still got food and meals that they wouldn't have gotten. And we're talking millions of people. Absolutely. So I'll Absolutely. take it. I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. But, you know, we so we obviously this show, we, we created this show to be a black show for non-black people, you know, to create better allies, to empower folks, the people that were out on the streets that wanted to know where to go, what to do in 2020, where do we go? How do I support? What do I put on my sign? What does this mean? What does that mean? What is it that you want? How can I help? You know, there was nothing talking to those people. Um, no, no show like this in this space, in the radio space, um, on these stations that was doing that. And so we created this. Um, but again, the, the conclusion, the outcomes is, is more important than anything. And so, People come at us, you know, because, you know, black people listen to the show as well. And some folks take issue and that's okay because we don't know everything, but as long as the tone is good and, and positive, then we'll all get there. I mean, it's a very difficult job to do, but I love you all. doesn't matter who you are, what color you're from or what color, where you're from or anything like that. My job is to love you and, and I'm doing my best for you. All right, let's get back to these uh, slides. All right. Um, I'm going to burn through a few of these. Uh, First, Black-owned businesses get 3% of all business loans. <laughs> uh, black people own 1% of all stocks. Black people own 4% of legal cannabis businesses. Under 1% of Fortune 500 CEOs are Black women. Uh, scooter startup Bird, you know those little scooters in every city? Um, scooter startup Bird got more funding than all Black women upstarts combined in 2020. Um, in 1950, Black men made 51 cents for every $1 white men made. Now, 51 cents. So that means it has not changed. Uh, Americans think Black people have 90% of the wealth while white people do. Oh, sorry. Americans think black people have 90% of the wealth white people do. So Americans think black people have 90% of the wealth of white folks. It's actually 10%. Uh, black homeowners are still five times more likely to be in old redlined areas 50 years after redlining was outlawed. That is why you need critical race theory. That. Do you see the legal implications of a system that was outlawed and what are the long-term implications of it? How do systems continually affect, you know, these communities after the laws have been passed and changed and so forth? That is where critical race theory comes into play. No one in elementary school is going to learn about this. And if they did, they wouldn't look at themselves like, oh my gosh, I'm a bad person. Oh, woe is me. You know, at least that's my take on it. All right, I'll move on. Uh, black Americans are three times more likely than white people to be killed by the police. And that's 300% more likely, by the way. Because three times makes it sound small. That's 300% more likely. I like the way you said it better. Um, in eight cities, the rate of police killing black men is higher than the general U.S. murder rate. Um, facial recognition is 100 times more likely to misidentify black faces than white ones. This all came out on the same, all these slides came out on the same day. So you can imagine the impact that it had on me and Q. All right, I'll continue. 
Uh, distributions from corporate stock buybacks and dividends in the last 15 years benefited white people 72 times more than black people. Black-owned small businesses were three times less likely than white-owned businesses to get a PPP bailout. Minimum wage workers are twice as likely to be black than white. Whew. All right. 37% of black families have zero dollars in net worth. I'll say that one more time. 37% of black families have no net worth. That is zero dollars. Um, and that's twice the rate of white families. Under the post-World War II GI Bill, 0.1% of homes went to black military vets. 0.1. Not 1%. And 99% went to everyone else. 0.1. Went to black military vets. 0.9% went to everybody else. Thank you. Yeah. 99.9. There it is. Um, Black voters are 74% more likely than white voters to wait at least 30 minutes at the polls. Oh, I bet they love that on the right. All right. Um, median net worth white families with kids, $68,838. Read that again. The median net worth of white families with kids is $63,838. The median net worth of black families with kids is $808. So the numbers... 63,838 versus 808. So it's over 63,000 more dollars. Um, and it's not even that, that the amount is, is important. It's just, it's, it's nothing. So gross Yeah, that's crazy. And we talked, we talked, I think it was last week we talked about how having money in the house affects the brain development for babies. If, if, a, if, a, if a mother who's just given birth, um, a postpartum, I think that's what it's called, um, or freshly birthed, you know, uh, seed in the house, man, uh, their, their brain develops better when there's fiscal resources. This is like a scientific thing. We talked about it on a previous show. Feel free to hit the website, civiccipher.com and download it. Um, and then our last slide here. From 1930 to 1960, 1% of all mortgages were issued to Black people. Uh, today, homelenders are 80% more likely to reject a Black person's application than a white person with the same finances. And finally, Black millennials' net worth is 52% lower than their parents at this same age. Once oh, again, sh- oh, you know what? Before we go, about 30 seconds, Q, any final thoughts? These numbers are staggering. And just to echo my point from before, it's, there's, it's, an, it's a statistical impossibility for all of these truths to be random. It's absolutely intentional, absolutely systemic, and absolutely on purpose. And that's the part that makes it so disgusting. Yeah. Well, um, again, I implore you to check out uh, on Twitter at Dan Price Seattle. 
Um, all the sources uh, for all of his statistics are there so you can examine them. I looked at the sources, too, because I don't want to take some nonsense and put it on the radio because then y'all be coming after me and I don't need that problem. <laughs> so um, check them out for yourself. It is very insightful. Uh, and I think you'll become a more empathetic human being after seeing that. And maybe it'll inspire some creativity along the way. Now, the way black history facts. Sidney Portier. He died uh, earlier this year at age 94. Um, and I will be reading a bit from CNN.com uh, in their article um, uh, that they wrote after he passed. Uh, Portia overcame an impoverished background in the Bahamas and softened his thick island accent to rise to the top of his profession at a time when prominent roles for black actors were rare. He won the Oscar for 1963's Lilies of the Field, in which he played an itinerant laborer who helps a group of white nuns build the chapel. Many of his best-known films explored racial tensions as Americans were grappling with social changes wrought by the civil rights movement. In 1967 alone, he appeared as a Philadelphia detective fighting bigotry in small-town Mississippi in In the Heat of the Night, and a doctor who wins over his white fiancé's skeptical parents in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. That's the one I know him for. Um, Portier's movies struggled for distribution in the South, that makes sense, and his choice of roles was limited to what white-run studios would produce. Racial taboos, for example, precluded him from most romantic parts, but his dignified roles helped audiences in the 50s and 60s envision Black people not just as servants, but as doctors, teachers, and detectives. We got a good one for today. <laughs> Um, at the same time, as the lone black leading man in 1960s Hollywood, he came under tremendous scrutiny. He was too often hailed as a noble symbol of his race and endured criticism from some black people who said he had betrayed them by taking sanitized roles and pandering to whites. Uh, it's, it's hard to please everyone, um, but I do understand, you know, black folks, you know, people that have been hurt, my people been hurt so much that to, to be critical of everything it makes sense so I, I i just bark i'm not mad if you guys want to be critical of me that's okay um it's been an enormous responsibility portier told oprah winfrey in 2000 and i accepted it and i lived in a way that showed how i respected that responsibility i had to in order for others to come behind me there were certain things i had to do as a young actor he overcame enormous challenges the youngest of seven children, Sidney Portier was born several months premature in Miami on February 20th, 1927. So tiny he could fit in his father's hand. His parents were tomato farmers who often traveled to and from Florida and the Bahamas. He was not expected to live. His mother consulted a palm reader who assuaged her fears. The lady took her hand and started speaking to my mother. Don't worry about your son. He will survive. Portier told CBS News in 2013. And these were her words. She said, he will walk with kings. When he was 15, Portier's parents sent him from the Bahamas to live with an older brother in Miami, where they figured they would have better opportunities. Portier didn't like Miami, and soon he headed up north to New York, where he tried his hand at acting. It did not go well at first. With limited schooling, he had trouble reading a script. But he got a job as a dishwasher in a restaurant, where a fortuitous encounter changed his life. An elderly waiter took an interest in the teen and spent nights after work reading the newspaper with him to improve his comprehension, grammar, and punctuation. That man, every night, the place closed, everyone's gone, and he sat there with me week after week after week, Portier told CBS News. And he told me about punctuations. He told me where, what dots were and what dots mean between these two words and all that stuff. 
Soon after, Portier landed work with the American Negro Theater, where he took acting lessons, softened his Bahamian accent, and landed a stage role as an understudy to Harry Belafonte. This led to roles on Broadway and eventually caught the attention of Hollywood. Portier's first movie was 1950's No Way Out, a noir, no, no, I can never say noir. noir film in which he played a young doctor who must treat a racist patient. That led to increasingly prominent roles as a revered in the apartheid drama Cry the Beloved Country, a troubled student in Blackboard Jungle, and an escaped prisoner in The Defiant Ones, in which he and Tony Curtis were shackled together and forced to get along to survive. With that 1958 film, Portier became the first Black man to be nominated for an Oscar. But for a dark-skinned actor in the 1950s, finding complex roles was difficult. Uh, quote, Blacks were so new in Hollywood, there was almost no frame of reference for us except as stereotypical one-dimensional carriers, Portier told Winfrey. I had in mind what was expected of me, not just what other Blacks expected, but what my mother and father expected and what I expected of myself. Early on, Portier made a conscious decision to reject roles that weren't consistent with his values or that reflected badly upon his race. He told Winfrey that as a struggling young actor, he turned down a role that paid $750 a week because he didn't like the character, a janitor who didn't respond after thugs killed his daughter and threw her body on his lawn. Quote, I cannot imagine playing that part. So I said to myself, that's not the kind of work I want. And quote, and it, oh, and oh, sorry, <laughs> that's not the kind of work I want and told my agent that I couldn't play the role. End quote. Poitier said he. Um, he said, why can't you play it? There's nothing derogatory about it in racial terms. And I said, I can't do it. He never understood. Um, and we, de we don't get to talk about all his activism that he did. We don't get to talk about all the, the cr criticism that he received from both sides, you know, white folks and black folks. Um, he mentioned, you know, the sanitation of his characters. But, you know, if, if you want to find out more about his awards, about everything, it's just a rich story here. Um, please uh, just CNN.com. You can read the whole thing for yourself. Um, it just really gives you an idea of what he had to go through and might even paint a slight picture. I mean, we could make the case of the sort of things that we have to go through here on this show now. Q, you think? Yeah, absolutely. We have to play this game too, where we have, we can't be too much. And, you know, I think our hearts are in the right place. We, we want to educate people. We want to love people. I think that that's, and we want people to love each other. And we're in a position to do something. We have the skill set. We have the platform. So this is what we're doing with it. I mean, we could be making money and, you know, listening to music and all that sort of stuff, you know, and hanging out backstage, you know, but those days are over. We, we have a more meaningful journey at this point. So. Um, so, yeah, if you want to find out more, um, just check out CNN.com, Sydney Portier. But that is our way, Black History Fact. Anything you'd like to add before we close, Q? Um, continue to follow us, man. You know, the, the, the genesis of this show was born of our voices needing to be heard in spaces where traditionally they weren't. Uh, we never knew that it would turn into all that it's turned to. Like Ram just said at the start of the show, go on our social medias, check us out. We got some really, really cool and exciting things happening for us right now. And it literally is because of you all. So thank you guys so much for your support. Thank you for caring. Um, thank you for letting things that might not affect you directly 
mean something to you and, and allowing those things to be important enough for you to listen to us for a few minutes a week. You know what? I, I, I'm glad you said that. And, and I think that you're right. I, if you can go check out our social media because you'll get the intricate details, but I will, you know, not every, I, I get it. Not everybody does that. Not everybody connects the dots in that way. So I'll just kind of let a little bit of it be known. Um, recently we reached an agreement with iHeartMedia to help distribute the show. And so they're going to be adding several radio stations to our already bountiful lineup of affiliates across the country. Um, shout out to the Pacifica Network. Shout out to all the independent stations carrying this program. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're growing and it's because of you, directly because of you. There's no other line that we can connect. So with that said, thank you for listening to Civic Cypher. I'm your host, Ramsey Scott. I'm going by the name Q Ward. And until next week, y'all. Peace. Hey, yo, we handle it. These brothers are fabulous. Dilated, showing you where rhyme travel is. Worlds is between from sunlight to moon. Busting off stage like gunfight saloons. Pull my mic back. You like that? Journalists with journalists, too. We can strike back. Hardcore reporters with orders from headquarters. Behind enemy lines, sidestepping the borders. With press passes, we bring it to you as it happens. The streets love my crew for music and rapping. Street commander slash beat expander Here to fight the slander with the proper propaganda What's happening? You got a question, then ask it The news is just a TV show Get past it And this from a quiet wartime journalist Headlines Wake up, refuse, and resist Like this 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 Like this